This weekend, um, our student ministry had a retreat at Piney Woods Camp, and so I'm really impressed to see so many of our students back. I I know they got here, but they... I'm pretty sure they didn't sleep, so I'm impressed they're still here. That's really good. You know, I, I heard a, a story about a, a college class where a guy fell asleep in the class, and the teacher was, you know, he was a, he was a character, so he wrote on the board, let's all leave quietly, and so he'll wake up with no one else in the room. And that's what they did. They left, and no one ever told me what happened after that. The guy just woke up all by himself in a, in a dark classroom. I'd love to have been there. But my point is, if I make signals to you, that we're all going to leave, that means one of these kids has gone to sleep, and we're just going to, probably won't happen, but you know, it could, just be aware. Got with me? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we are continuing our study, uh, the truth about heaven. Scriptures have so much information about the life that is to come. And a lot of people don't realize that. They, they read, even people who read the Bible, they just sort of skim over those verses and don't really take time to put them all together and see all that the Scriptures say about the world that is to come. God does not leave us ignorant about this. He gives us enough knowledge, enough information that we can visualize, that we can imagine ourselves there, that we can get excited. When I was a little boy, couldn't have been more than five, I had a terrible dream. And it was so vivid, I remember it in distinct detail as if it happened just a few days ago, when really it was over 40 years ago. In the dream, I was coming home from school on the bus, and the bus stopped, I got off, and the first thing I noticed was there was an ambulance in front of my house, and they were loading someone onto the ambulance, but I couldn't see who. And as I walked past it, the ambulance drove away, and I walked into my house and walked through the front door and turned to the right, and... Instead of my mom standing at the sink washing dishes, there was the mother of one of my friends standing there. She turned and she smiled at me. And I knew in that very instant that it was my mom that was in the ambulance and that my mom had died. And so I immediately started crying. And she, you know, her smile turned to a a face of sadness and she ran and she wrapped her arms around me. And I remember saying, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. And that's when I woke up. And when you're a little kid there's nothing scarier than the thought that one of your parents could pass away. I'm thankful to tell you that didn't happen. That was just a dream. Both my parents are still alive. Uh, I've had, I had all four of my grandparents into my, into my 30s. I still have one grandmother still alive. She's going to be 100 next month, Lord willing. So I've been blessed. But I think in a way, that dream was, was God's way of preparing me for what I do for a living. I mean, it was years before I was called to this, but Ever since I've become, I've gone into vocational ministry, especially as a pastor, I've held a lot of weeping people in my arms. I've comforted or tried to comfort a lot of people who are going through just what that little five-year-old Jeff was going through in that dream. And so we come to this subject today of what happens to us when we die, and I recognize that this is probably the most important or the most interesting subject I could bring up for a lot of you in this room. In fact, this whole 10-week series on heaven, I've been emphasizing to you that heaven is not about where you go when you die. It's about the return of Christ. It's about the resurrection of the dead. It's about the redemption of this planet. It's about a new world where we will walk in physical bodies, and we're going to talk about that in weeks to come. And I know all of that. You heard that. You heard that last week. Hopefully you internalized it. Even so, I bet there are people here who are saying, yeah, but but what about my loved ones who are already dead? What about me if I die before Christ returns? What will become of me? What is my status? So that's what we're going to talk about today. 
The scripture that we're going to read today shows us that God cares about that question, what happens to us when we die. Because this passage out of 1 Thessalonians comes from a very, very similar situation. The first generation of Christians, they thought, a lot of them, at least these, these Christians in Thessalonica, thought somehow that they were going to still be alive when Jesus returned. They thought, and in fact, they, they were looking forward to that blessed hope, the living hope that we sang about a moment ago, that we're going to be here when Christ returns, we're going to spend eternity with Him in a new earth. And so when members of the church, their friends, their relatives started passing away, it disturbed them. They said, well, what's going on? We thought all of us would still be here. Does that mean that when Christ returns, that those who've died won't get to enjoy what we enjoy? Have they just missed out? And so Paul is writing to comfort them, to give them some answers. So here's what he says, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Listen to that line, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this passage is often used to talk about an idea called the rapture which I'm not really going to discuss today. Um, we'll, that will be the subject of another message in this series. Some people believe there's going to be a rapture where God's people are going to be taken away from this world, and others do not believe that. We'll get into that later. What I want to show you is this idea that Paul says, don't be like the rest of mankind. They grieve, and they don't have hope. We still grieve. There's nothing unchristian about grieving. If anybody ever told you, oh, you're a Christian, you shouldn't cry when your loved ones die, tell that to Jesus. He's standing by the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he's weeping. Shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept, that's where it comes from. So it is entirely appropriate to cry when you lose someone to death. It is entirely appropriate for days, months, even years to still feel sadness, to still feel that loss. I've heard someone say, it's not something you ever really get over. It's like losing a limb. You, you learn to function without it, but you never actually get over it. And that's what grief is for us. But the difference is, the distinctly Christian way of grieving is, we grieve with hope. I mean, it, the, the analogy to losing a limb is a person who's lost a limb but has hope says, yeah, but someday I'm going to get a new one. Someday I'll have that leg back. In fact, a better leg than I ever had before. And we as God's people have hope that we'll see our loved ones again who died in Christ. We have hope that this world is not all there is. Hallelujah. This world is not as good as it gets. He says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. And then he goes on to tell them some information we'll talk about in more detail later. And then at the end, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We should talk about heaven. We should tell each other the things we know, the things we've read in Scripture, the things we've daydreamed. The things we've speculated, as long as we know the difference between speculation and Scripture, we should discuss these things. It encourages us. God wants us to have hope. And what is hope? Hope is different than saying, wow, I really hope my team wins. 
You know, in this, in this illustration, I used to say, it's different than saying, I hope the Astros win the World Series. Then they won the World Series, and I can't use that anymore. But it's different than saying, my son is out at 1.30 in the morning. I sure hope he's not getting into trouble. You know, the stock market took a tumble yesterday. I sure hope all my money's not wiped out. We say those things, and we're not confident that it's true. When the Bible says hope, we're confident. When the Bible says hope, we know. When the Bible says hope, it's something that is Ours for sure. We just don't possess it yet. We grieve with hope. We know what's coming. So what is coming? The way I want to do this may seem a little unusual to you, but I want us to imagine that I'm speaking to a little five-year-old who's lost his mom. After the first service, I did the same thing in the first service, and uh, one, of the, one of our members came up to me and he said, you know, that, that rang true with me because I lost both my mom and my dad when I was six. Can you imagine? It's a hard world to live in. A hard world. What if I was talking to a little boy like that? And he lost his mom. What would he say? First of all, he'd ask me, where's my mom right now? I know that'd be his first question. And I, I would say, if, if his mom was anything like my mom, if, if his mom had faith in Christ like my mom does, I'd say, well, I know where she is. She's in heaven right now with Jesus. And if he asked me, well, how do you know? I'd say, well, because, not because she's a good person, not because she's a great mom, but because he's a, a great savior. Because he will not fail to rescue those who put their trust in him. He will not let their trust go unrewarded. And I know because there's a story in the Bible. We talked about it in church a few weeks ago, or two weeks ago, about the man who died next to Jesus, crucified right by his side. Actually, there were two. And at the beginning, one of the gospel writers tells us that both men were, were mocking Jesus. Can you imagine being so hateful? You mock someone who's being executed at the same time you're being executed. And yet, as the day wore on, as those six hours on the cross continued to advance, and he saw his life ebbing from him, he began to repent of his sins he said, he said to his friend, he said, we deserve everything we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. And I would say to that little boy, your mom made that decision long before that thief did. That thief waited until the end. Your mom did that early on in life. And so I know, I know she's in paradise with Jesus today. And I also tell him about 2 Corinthians 5.8, where Paul says, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no in-between time. Don't get hung up when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we read just a moment ago, those who have fallen asleep. It doesn't mean we're asleep in the ground waiting for Christ to return. Our spirits are with Christ immediately. We're in His presence immediately. We don't, we don't take, there's not an in-between time where we're holding our breath. Our, our next breath after our last one here is a breath of heavenly air. And so I would confidently say to that boy, your, your mom is with Christ in heaven. And he might say, well, where is that? Where is heaven? Is it someplace we can go? Can we, can we get on a plane and, or can we, can we ride a rocket and get there? And I'd say, no, we don't really know where heaven is. It's not someplace we can see. I know people talk about it being up in the sky. And the Bible even uses that as a metaphor sometimes because it says in, in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. But it's being metaphorical. Heaven is not a place we can go on our own or we can see with a telescope. But... The Bible tells stories of times when God gives people a glimpse. 
There's several examples. For instance, Paul tells his story in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. He went up to heaven. He saw, as he says it, inexpressible things, things too wonderful to tell. John, the apostle John, when he's an old, old man and he's, he's stuck on the island of Patmos, there, uh, basically in prison on that island because he was preaching the gospel and the Roman Empire didn't like it. He gets a vision of the throne room of heaven. He literally walks the throne room of heaven alongside Christ. And he writes the book of Revelation based on that vision. And then there's one of my favorites. It's, it's in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7 tells the story of Stephen, who was one of the great men of the early church. Not an apostle, just a regular layperson, and yet he was so full of the Holy Spirit, so powerful for Christ, that before they tried to kill any of the apostles, they came after Stephen. The enemies of the gospel cornered him, and they were picking up rocks to stone him to death. And you would think that Stephen at that point would beg for his life, would say, hey guys, I'm not going to cause you any trouble. Let's just call it even. Let's walk away. But instead... Acts 7, 55 through 56 says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Think about that. He's just about to die. He is, he is about to be killed violently, and God gives him this glimpse. And suddenly he's not afraid anymore. In fact, he sees Jesus standing as if to say, Come on over. I'm waiting for you. I'm ready for you. Come on. Come on down. You know, there's a lot of books that have been written in the last several years, the last 15, 20 years about near-death experiences. Some of you have probably read some of those. And I'm not saying it's wrong to read those. I, I happened to meet uh, Don Piper, the author of 90 Minutes in Heaven. I've, I've been in his presence two times. And I believe his story. I believe at the very least he's telling the truth about what he experienced. Now, whether what he experienced was a hallucination, whether it was a real glimpse of heaven, I don't know. I don't think even Don knows. Only God knows that. My point to you is this. Those books are fine, but they're not Scripture. If you want to know about heaven, read the Scriptures. Read those books if they bring you comfort, if they get you excited about the afterlife, if they get you more motivated to live for Christ in this world. Hallelujah. But don't interpret those books as God's Word, because they're not. In fact, one of those books, and I can't remember the title, but the, the little boy who claimed to have gone to heaven later revealed, no, I, I didn't actually do that. I, I made that up to sell books. So the Word of God is all you need. That is, that, that's where the information comes from that we know is true. So where is heaven? We don't know, but God does. And when He wants us to see a glimpse, He will. And I don't know, maybe it could be that on the moment or, or at the time of our deaths, God will do what He did for, do for us what He did for Stephen and give us that little glimpse just to ease our minds to say, oh, I know where I'm going now. I know what it's like there. I've seen enough of it to say, I'm not afraid. What is it like there? That's the third question he might ask. This little boy might say, well, well what is it like? Is, is it like we see in the cartoons with the halos and the wings and the clouds? I don't think so. You know, John gives us the longest glimpse of the present heaven in the book of Revelation. Revelation is that story of John in the presence of Christ in this throne room, and he describes things that are hard for us to imagine. And some of it, obviously, is symbolic language because he's writing in an apocalyptic style. We know, for instance, that when he talks about Jesus as a lamb that was slain, Jesus isn't literally a little baby sheep, right? It's a metaphor. And yet, we know from John's vision that there are things in that place that are beautiful. We know that there are people there from every nation, every race, every language group. 
I'm sure they all speak East Texas English. I'm just positive, but they all speak other languages too. And there's more angels than you can count. I don't think any of us has ever seen an angel uh, that wasn't in human form. Uh, So that's going to be dazzling. That's going to be amazing to us. There's no sin there. There's no pain there. There's no sorrow there. There's no death there. And best of all, we are in the presence of Almighty God. So we know that about that place. He might ask me, well, does my mom have a body right now or is she sort of like a ghost? And I would say, I am, I am confident she has some physical form. We don't know what that's like exactly. We know that Jesus is there in his resurrected body. When Stephen looked up to heaven, he saw Jesus. He didn't see a, a spirit. He saw the physical body of Jesus. So at least one person in heaven has their resurrected body. Um, and John, in Revelation, describes seeing people wearing robes, carrying palm branches. So obviously they have some physical form. They're able to touch things. They're able to wear things. Besides that, Jesus called the place paradise, and I think that's significant. Paradise was a very meaningful word in that language. Uh, it's, it, I, I told you a couple weeks ago, it's a borrowed word from Persian, where the Persians used to have their little private gardens. The rich men would, would segment off this little area where they could go and, and, and sit and eat peeled grapes and, and be undisturbed by the riffraff, and, and Jesus says, hey, my, my home is paradise. That's my paradise, and I'm inviting you there. And that word is so significant when the rabbis 200 years before Jesus were translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, they used that word paradise to describe the Garden of Eden. And so some people believe, literally believe, that when we die, that's where we go. We go to the Garden of Eden. And there's some reason, I mean, that's just speculation, but there's some reason to believe that could be possible because in Revelation it tells us that the tree of life is in the new Jerusalem. The tree of life, remember, was the tree in the Garden of Eden. It says the tree of life is in the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21, is the present heaven that's going to come down here when Christ returns. So Randy Alcorn, one of my favorite writers on this subject, he speculates, and it's pure speculation, he would tell you. He says, maybe on the new earth, the new Jerusalem is going to be the capital city and there's going to be this spectacular park right in the middle of the city and that's the Garden of Eden. And right in the centerpiece is the tree of life. Could be. We know it's going to be wonderful. Now, I'm sure this, this young man would, would want to know this question. He'd, he'd want to know, he'd say, when I get there, will I know my mom? And, and will she know me? Or will, be, will we be strangers to one another? And I would tell him, I know you're going to know your mom. I know that you and I are going to know one another. There's there's enough evidence in Scripture to tell us that. Luke 16 is a story that Jesus told about a man named Lazarus, not his friend Lazarus that died and, and was risen, a different one, and a certain rich man whose name we don't know. Now, in Luke 16, a lot of people call this a parable. I don't think it's a parable because Jesus doesn't use proper names in any of his other parables. I think this is a story of something that actually happened. In the story, Lazarus dies. He's a a poor man, a a man who's suffered with a a skin disease and with poverty and is begged outside the gates of the rich man. The rich man dies as well. Lazarus goes to be with Christ, goes to be with God. The rich man is separated from God and is in hell. God opens a window so that the, the rich man can look up and see Lazarus up there in heaven, standing next to Abraham, and he cries out and he says, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus down 
So he can dip his finger in, in some cool water and, and put it on my tongue because I'm dying of thirst down here. Apparently the rich man thinks that even in the afterlife, Lazarus needs to be his servant. Now, there's a lot of truth in that story and I, I don't have time to go into it. What I want to point out to you is the rich man looks up to heaven and he recognizes Lazarus. Lazarus still looks the same. There's another story. Some of you won't know this story. It's, it's really obscure, but it's the story of Saul, the first king of, e, of Israel. Um, who after a while, he, he was faithful to God at first, and then he turned away and just turned his back on the Lord. Later in life, as, as he knows his life is coming to an end, there's a big battle tomorrow, and, and he knows it's not going to go well for me. I, I don't think I'm going to survive. And he's thinking, man, I really wish I had some good advice. I really wish there was someone I could ask some questions of. You know, when the prophet Samuel was still here, he always used to give me good advice. But Samuel's dead. What am I going to do? So Saul actually finds a woman who is a medium, a witch. And he says, I want you to conjure up Samuel for me. And so she does her little hocus pocus and up pops Samuel from the afterlife. And this is the funny part of the story. The witch is terrified. She didn't think it was going to work, which apparently means she's never actually done this before. She's just been putting people on, right? But there's Samuel. Boom. And here's the point of the story. Both Saul and the witch recognized him. They knew him. So I know, I know that we'll know one another when we see each other in that place. Now the little boy might ask me, is it okay if I talk to my mom right now? Can she hear me? If I, if I just tell her about my day or if I tell her what's going on, I just, wanna, I just miss her and want to talk to her, would she be able to hear me? Now please hear me, folks. I don't know that what I'm about to say is correct, but I think I'm right about this. I would say to him, number one, there's no harm in that. And number two, I do think she hears. And here's why. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, John is up there in the throne room of heaven. He happens to come across a group of martyrs. These are people who've lost their lives for the sake of Christ. They've been murdered for their faith. And they're talking to Jesus and they're saying, Lord, when are you going to go down there and fix things? When are you going to go bring justice to this world, justice upon the people who took our lives? So what that says to me is people in heaven know what's going on on earth. They care about what's going on on earth. There was, I've had people tell me, well, when we get there, we're not going to know anything. We're not going to remember our lives down here. I don't think that's true at all. I think we're still going to be involved, at least in an emotional sense, in, in the the work of God on earth. And you might say, well, but won't that make us sad when we see all the bad decisions, when we see uh, tragedies happen? Well, yes, but God deals with that every day. And He's a God of joy. And we'll be in His presence. He'll show us how to see things through His eyes. There's another passage, Luke 9, uh, the story of the transfiguration. Jesus, and He takes uh, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on top of Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in all of Israel. And while they're there, Jesus' whole body is transfigured. He suddenly takes on this new physical form they've never seen before. He's as brilliant as a bolt of lightning. And all of a sudden they look, and here's Elijah and Moses standing there talking to him. And what are they talking about? Luke says they're talking to Jesus about his upcoming death, that he's about to suffer in Jerusalem. They're saying, Jesus, we know. Real soon you're going to be in Jerusalem. You're going to die. They're getting him ready. Again, it says to me that people in heaven know what's going on down on earth. They're involved. They're emotionally invested in what's going on down here. And here's my favorite, Hebrews 12.1. So Hebrews 12.1 comes right after Hebrews 11 because, you know, that's how math works. 
And what is Hebrews? Hebrews 11 is the famous chapter about faith. It's this long chapter. If you've never read it, you'll love it. It's just story after story of people like Abraham and Rahab and Moses and David and Solomon and, and all these people who've, who put their faith in the Lord and it's encouraging us to be like them. So after all these verses of stories of great men and women of faith, after him, after him reminding us of people we learned about as children in Sunday school, he then says in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And it's hard for me not to preach on that verse because it's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, but I'm going to exercise self-control because it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Aren't you proud of me? Yes. Um, but I want to point out, it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of what? Witnesses. What do witnesses do? They witness. They watch, right? So the people who are there are watching us. That's what Paul is saying. They're watching us. The great men and women of faith are watching us. Your loved ones who've died in Christ are watching. Your, every godly person you've ever known who really served the Lord, they're watching. And it doesn't mean that's all they do is just sit around watching like, you know, like it's reality television, but they're involved, they're invested, they're rooting for us, they're, they're hoping for us. And I would say to that young man, I'd say, it's fine, if you want to talk to your mom, it won't hurt anything. If that brings you comfort, go ahead. And maybe she's listening. I do believe she's watching. I do believe she's rooting for you. She's proud of you. And she can't wait to see you again. But I would also say, listen, the Bible is very clear on this. When you need help, when you need guidance, when you need wisdom, when you need a miracle, you talk to God. And your mom would say that too. She would say, God loves you even more than I do, and he has the power to be there for you, so you pray to him, not to me. There's no indication in Scripture that you ever pray to anyone but God himself. And isn't that a privilege? We don't have to have a mediator. I don't need my mom to pray for me. I don't need my pastor to pray for me. I can talk straight to him because Jesus died for my sins and gave me that access, and he gave it to you too. You know, one of these days, when that little boy is old enough, and I feel like he can understand, I'd, I'd also sit down with him and I'd say, everything I told you about years ago when you were little and your mom first died, all of that's true, every bit of it. Your mom is in a great place. She's happy. She's joyful. Her pain is over. She'll never suffer again. But here's what I need to tell you. Here's the rest of the story. The truth is there's something even better coming. She's one, she wouldn't come back if you gave her the chance, but something even better is coming. Because you notice in that passage we read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul's trying to comfort his Thessalonian friends because their loved ones have died, notice he doesn't say, I don't want you to worry about those who've fallen asleep because they're with Jesus right now and everything's great for them. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even mention it. Instead, he goes right to the really good part. He says, don't worry about those who've fallen asleep because when Jesus returns, we're all getting new bodies. We're all going all to walk with him in this perfect world. It's all about the resurrection. And I would tell that little boy someday, uh, we don't know a lot about that place where we'll go when we die. We know it's good. We know it's paradise. But we know a lot about the place we're going to spend eternity because we're going to walk in real bodies that are like these, but better. We're going to walk in a world that's a lot like this, but way better. We're going to be home. And 
I would emphasize that to him like I'm emphasizing that to you. And that, friends, has been the hope of believers for thousands of years. And up until about 100 years ago, that was the dominant hope of people. If you, in fact, if you go to an old cemetery and you, you read tombstones that are over 100 years old, they will often reference the resurrection. They'll say things like, I will arise. In fact, some people believe that's why Christians used to be buried facing east because they had this belief, which is not biblical, but even so, uh, a belief that, that Christ would come with the dawn of the sun. And so they wanted to be facing Him when He returned. When they rose from the ground, they wanted to be facing Him. Here's the thing. We're going to talk about our new bodies next week. It's not how you're buried or if you're buried. That's not what's important. Christ is going to raise you up and give you a new body. And we'll talk about what those bodies will be like next week. The point is this. Our hope is, our confidence is, that this life is not all there is. That something better is coming. And we experience something wonderful the moment our lives end. And we experience something even better when Christ comes back to redeem this world fully. And my final question for you, and I wouldn't be a good pastor, I wouldn't be a good friend if I didn't ask this. Do you know where you're headed? Do you know what happens to you after you die? This life is not promised to us. The next day, the next breath is not promised to us. God has made a way, in His grace, He has made a way for us to gain the, the inheritance that only His Son deserves. Do you know that it's yours? Have you, have you given your heart to Him? 